Want to hear this episode ad-free? Hey, true crime friends. This is your host, Mary DePippi. And if you would like to hear your true crime in academia episodes completely ad-free, consider going to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber. For $5 a month, you not only get access to now ad-free episodes of True Crime and Academia, but bonus episodes as well. Every month, I love to offer subscribers a bonus episode, such as Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, or Casey Anthony, or The John Benet Ramsey Killing. I mean, you name it, I want to cover it. So... The only way you can access that is to go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. Like I said, it's only $5. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're really just buying me a coffee, which I know I say sometimes in my episodes, but it's true. And for all of the research and everything, you know, we put or I put into getting you these episodes, it would be nice to just have a cup of coffee. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today so you can get access to those bonus episodes. And like I said, now especially add free episodes. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and get your bonus episodes and ad free episodes today. Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back after our long, long, well, at least it felt long, break. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be back with you all. I hope you are all doing well. I've missed you all. There have been a lot of things going on with me. Um, You know, obviously we had the break and I know I said like that it was long, but like, I mean, long in... That it was extremely well deserved. Andrew and I both went into this break going that we really just wanted to reset, refresh, and kind of, you know, just reignite our passions, if you will. Um, luckily for me, it was going, our break occurred during a very busy work time, my nine to five. Um, I was traveling twice in July. So that was extremely stressful for me. I don't know what's going on with me lately. I used to, side note, I used to be able to deal with travel and everything and just be totally fine. But I'm finding in my late 20s and early 30s that that is not the case. Um, And by that, I mean that I've noticed this and other trips as well. Like this has occurred and I've noticed that it just noticed that it's a pattern. I feel like my stomach completely shuts down the first day and a half of travel. Meaning like I am literally not hungry. I don't want to eat shit. I don't want to drink anything, even though I usually wind up doing so. And by drinking, I mean like alcohol, not regular beverages, you know, hashtag water for life. Um, you know, things other than water, I mean. So, you know, and it would just like, like I would drink my normal amount. I would try to force myself to eat. And then it's literally like that first night that I'm there, I'm up throwing up everything <laughs> in my stomach. And I don't know why. I honestly don't. I'm not sure. Excuse me. Of course, you know, my sinus issues. I'm sniffling. Um, you know, those haven't gone away since we've been on break. But yeah, like I've just been like, what is going on? Like, and I do feel like it is stomach related. Because um, also the other thing is like, I'm super congested that first day as well. Like, once it hits a certain time, it's just like my nose just starts running like incessant. And all of you, some of you out there are definitely like, Mare, this is TMI. I promise we're nearing the end of this. But yeah, so I've noticed that about myself. Um, I don't know necessarily how to 
fix it other than like not eat anything and just be a hermit um until you know my stomach settles out but yeah um that happened with both trips the one trip because it was shorter it was pretty much the whole entire time the other one I did have some reprieve after being there for like a couple days like it my stomach settled out and everything was fine but yeah it was just I I don't know I just don't know but it's weird so yeah that's one thing I was dealing with but traveling for work twice it was it's not I mean, aside from the podcast and going to New York, it's not anything I've ever done before, um, specifically doing trade shows and stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Um, It was a really awesome experience, guys. Like, I really did enjoy it. And like I said, like, if I was going to have to do the podcast at the same time of traveling for both the trade show and this other project that I had to do um, to travel for... It would have been (laughs) so much more stressful. Um, Another thing that I decided that I was going to do over this break was not listen too heavy to true crime. Like, I feel like up until, I shouldn't say up until this point, I feel like it's been happening progressively since I started this podcast. And it's not a bad thing. It's just really a balance thing. It's just, you know, because I'm doing this podcast, because I'm researching specific murders, you know, and having to actually verbalize it, which I don't think a lot of people realize, like hearing about it and sometimes regurgitating it to other people that, you know, it's not always you don't always feel the impact of it. But in this scenario, when I'm going through in this way and on this type of format, I do I am affected by it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. You know, these cases do upset me more than I had anticipated. So, you know, over this break, I decided to take a break, for the most part, from true crime. You know, I listened to a few of my true crime podcasts just because I really like the people that create them. Um, but I also started diving into more like reality show based podcasts because that has been something I've picked up really more so you know earlier this year slash on this break which I'm happy with you know I used to always try to think of okay sorry if you hear children that's because there are children in my parents home right now to which I reside um you know, obviously, this is their house. They could do whatever they want. But sometimes the things that they plan do not coincide with my podcast. So there are small children in this household that I don't know if you can hear, but I can hear them screaming right now. And so, yeah, if you just hear them, even though you shouldn't, but if you do, that's why. So speaking to that, though, um, I am with my boyfriend looking to find a place. I am so excited. Um we have been talking about this for a couple years now and finally kind of found someone who we'd want to talk to. Um, we've talked to a few people as well in the industry and we're just really like, you know, we've done all the things. We're really just ready to move forward to look, find and hopefully, you know, before the end of this year. And if not, that's OK, too. But, you know, that is kind of our goal by the end of this year to find a house. So (laughs) true crime and academia might have a new recording studio that doesn't involve screaming children who are currently slamming doors from what I can hear, which I hate to say it, but thank God my poor Houston, my poor sweet (sighs) late baby Houston is gone and doesn't have to deal with this because He'd be a miserable little asshole right now. (laughs) I can't say that I would blame him. Anyway, I kind of wanted to start this new season with a little bit of a new structure. So I want to take the opportunity at the top of this episode and all of the episodes moving forward to just talk about the true crime news. Because, I mean, especially recently, there has been so much going on. I mean... It's just never ending, it feels like. 
So we're going to go into it just a little bit. Now, one of the things that I noticed is actually an update from a case that we covered. I don't know if any of you remember the Nohima Graber case. She was a Spanish teacher from Iowa, immigrated to the United States, I believe, and was killed by two of her students on her daily walk. Now, since I posted that episode, Willard Miller, one of the killers, you know, indicted in this case, or one of the suspects indicted in this case, was, you know, both of them were actually convicted. There were two involved. Both were convicted of murder. And he has recently, Willard Miller, has been sentenced to life without the positive with that with the possibility of parole after 35 years now the co-defendant in this case jeremy goodale who is also considered to be willard's friend is scheduled to go to court next month and it was supposed to be for sentencing however it seems that this court date might have been changed to just a hearing to kind of postpone the sentencing until a later date Now, what I didn't know at the time that I recorded the episode was that Jeremy Goodale has a plea deal with the prosecution, and he was actually willing to testify against Miller. So because of the plea deal, he should have a minimum of 25 years, because that is the mandatory minimum minimum for what they discussed. Now, to me... I'm not pointing fingers because stranger things have happened and, you know, not everybody's intentions are what they think they are. However, I feel like in this case, if Jeremy is arranging a plea deal or has arranged a plea deal, I feel like he feels like his role in this killing is less. I shouldn't say that he feels that way because obviously I don't know. But to me, it seems like maybe he thinks or is suggesting that Miller is more of the mastermind behind this, hence his willingness to testify. Now, it could have just been his own fear of, you know, like it just could have been for self-preservation purposes. We don't know. From my understanding, it doesn't seem like he had to testify. So, again, not entirely sure. But, again, this plea deal was arranged. So it seems like at most likely he's going to just get 25 minimum. Who knows what the jury and the judge are going to want to add after that. But, you know, some good news. And also, whenever you listen to that episode, you can automatically change, allegedly, <laughs> from when I said it to, they did it. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is Oceangate, which, <sighs> I mean, it just sounds like a problem in and of itself. Because everything, you know, we call everything gate. You know, when it's a scandal. So the fact that you're calling your company Oceangate really is kind of like disturbing, but also I feel like maybe very telling. Now, we all pretty much know of this story, in, unless you lived under a rock. Um, on June 22nd, five people, specifically two billionaires, were on this submersible contraption. That's just uh, that's the word I'm going to go with um, to go down. I want to say it was like 2.5 miles, which is like 30,000 some feet under sea level to see the Titanic. And sadly, after having lost communication, you know, there was a report that they were missing for a few days. Sadly, it came to be that like the actual um, vessel imploded within an hour or so or two hours maybe of them having like descended into the water. But, you know, I remember just like hearing that they were missing and just thinking about like the oxygen, just thinking how much of a horrible mindfuck. I mean, I know these people are billionaires and millionaires and it's kind of like, well, you can eat shit. But at at the same time, (sighs) we still have to be human at the end of the day, guys. And Regardless of how much money they make and regardless of what they do with that money, they're still human beings at the end of the day who lost their lives. And, you know, I do feel thankful that they weren't in the position of knowing that they were running out of time. I truly do hope that they were killed instantly 
on the implosion and things like that. But, um, you know, obviously we, we don't, we can't know for sure. Now, when this is all happening, I remembered seeing an article and I can't find, I tried to look for it. I couldn't find it. But it said that, like, what, I don't know if it was an engineer or someone who was working on this project said <laughs> that innovation was the reason for safety measures not being up to date. And I remember reading that and I was just like, what the actual <laughs> fuck? You want this thing to go down to see the fucking Titanic at the bottom of the ocean and withstand so much pressure, but you're not going to test it because innovation. Get the fuck out of here. And again, I don't know how true this is because I can't find the article, so I can't really back up its validity. But if that is true, like literally, what the fuck, guys? Now, look. The other thing is I don't want a victim blame here because we all saw the pictures of the controller of the submarine. And honestly, for me, when I saw that, I was just like, if I was getting on that sub, I would have left immediately. Because this thing can't even be trusted to run or work on modern gaming technology. Jesus, I just hit my mic. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, like it can't, it can't even, can, I mean, it probably could if you tried. But like, it's not supposed to be. So like the fact that this thing looks so out of date, like I just would have, I would have fled. <laughs> I would have been gone. Again, not victim blaming. But I, like for like that was just the weirdest thing to me to see that and just be like, are you fucking kidding me? You spend all this money to do all of this thing. You charge these people this amount of money to go on this thing and it's being controlled by the most inexpensive piece of equipment possible. Like, oh my God. Again, I'm not victim blaming here. If anything, I'm more pissed off at the engineers and everyone who decided that that was a great thing to use. Now, Carl Stanley, a parent friend of the late CEO of Stockton Rush, who was on the Ocean Gate Titan when it imploded, one of the five victims, he's alleging that Rush knew that this vessel was not safe, and he specifically called it a mousetrap for billionaires. Now, this hasn't been necessarily verified or anything, but... um. I just don't think that's fair to blame a dead man while he's, you know, dead. Um, but also, if that is the case, that is really disturbing that he would think to just go ahead with this, whether it was for greed-related purposes, you know, wanting more money, or just not giving a shit and just hoping that it will work out. We don't know. But this is what this supposed friend is claiming. Honestly, though, overall, it's just, it's sad. It's tragic. You know, I was kind of a little shocked at first that there was going to be such of a thing. But then at the same time, I was kind of like, eh, well, maybe not. But again, you know, like I said, the whole thing is just horrible. And I really do truly hope <laughs> that they all died a very quick death. And that, you know, they're resting in peace. As much peace as possible. Now, this last story I have for you is the Gilgo Beach murders that have finally sort of been allegedly solved. We're going to find out. I mean, this story is insane. And before I even read more into this case, I honestly was just like my brain was doing that thing with letters where it's like the first and, la and last letter match up, and then the rest in the middle are kind of the same. I was calling it Gigolo Beach, which of course is not at all the name, but also extremely insensitive, given the occupation of the victims, which like I hated myself even more after doing that, but I just had to tell you all <laughs> about that. That's what I was calling it. It's Gilgo, not Gigolo. Now for over 10 years, years. Bodies have been found on Gilgo Beach in Long Island, New York. Ten bodies were discovered in 2010 because of a search that was occurring on a woman's disappearance, and her remains were found among the ten bodies that they found. 
This led police to believe that there could be a serial killer, which they didn't necessarily relieve all the details as to why. However, though, this, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that this is clearly a dumping ground. Last Thursday and Friday, so the 13th and the 14th, police charged 59-year-old architect Rex Hermerman, or no, Hewerman, who gives a fuck because if he's guilty, then like I don't really care that I mispronounced his name, but it looks like it's Hewerman. Anyway, he was charged for four of the three women that are known officially as the Gilgo Four. He was charged with first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder in the killings of Melissa Bartholomew, age 24, who went missing in 2009, Megan Waterman, age 22, who went missing in 2010, and Amber Costello, age 27, who also went missing in 2010. He is also the prime suspect of the 2000 disappearance and thus murder of 25-year-old Maureen Brainbard or no Brainard Barnes. And according to the prosecution and everyone involved, this is expected to be resolved soon. And again, this is according to court documents. Now, my guess is this because of like DNA testing or some other forensic testing that's going on. All four women were wrapped in camouflage burlap. And also worked as escorts who advertised on Craigslist. They were all last seen between July 2007 and September 2010, according to officials. Now, after Bartholomew's disappearance, Melissa Bartholomew's disappearance, authorities said that her family received multiple taunting calls in which one of the calls, the person on the other said, the other person on the other end, excuse me, said that they killed her and sexually assaulted her. Now, this was also added to this guy Rex's the architect um, to his bail application. Because, again, if he is being charged, if they have sufficient evidence, which it seems like they do in order to bring charges then it would be most likely that he is the one making these calls. So it does make sense why they would put that on there in order to make it be harder for him to get bail. Investigators seem to have been really working on these specific cases for the past two years and had been following Hewerman and his family for a while. Now, they were able to obtain his DNA sample. Get this. From a discarded piece of pizza crust. So just in case anyone out there, which I hope none of you are, are looking to commit a crime. Or, you know, might be in the throes of a crime that you didn't commit, hopefully. Because I'm not condoning committing crime. But I'm just saying, maybe eat your pizza crust. That's all I'm saying. Because it's pretty, (laughs) I have to say though, though, that is pretty awesome that they were able to do that. Now, right now, they are currently trying to find trophies that he might have kept. And based off of everything that I've read, based off the literature and everything, my guess is that they know what what type of trophies they are looking for. And my guess, sadly, like I said, based off of the research and everything that I've seen literature-wise... It seems to be that these trophies might be body parts. And here's why I think that. Because every thing, every news source that I've seen that's reported on this case refers to the ten bot the ten people as ten sets of remains. Which you know, if you had the full I mean, and I hate to say this, but if you had the full set, I feel like you would just call it like a body. You'd be like, we have we found 10 bodies, 10 humans. But the fact that they're calling it sets of remains is making me think that parts of each remain or some of them anyway, at least the four out of the 10 that they found are missing certain things. At least, again, I have no idea. This is just my 
speculation, like I said, based off of the information and the way that they're describing things. I hope that is not the case because that is just extremely fucking horrific on top of everything that this poor these poor women probably fucking went through, you know, because he admitted to raping them. So, I mean, like... Or at least the one girl, you know, I mean, so I can't even imagine that he didn't follow suit with the others. So, I mean, <sighs> you know, that's that's my reasoning for thinking that it is a biological trophy and not necessarily jewelry. Now, Dennis Rader, BTK himself, has also come up with opinion for this case and this killer Rex Hewerman specifically. I briefly glanced at an article from Fox News. I don't really like Fox News, to be honest with you. There's a lot of sources I really don't like, but they are definitely one of them. But anyway, BTK himself says that he thinks that Hewerman is a clone of himself. That's fucking great, because if it turns... I mean, honestly, if it turns out that this guy really isn't the killer and just there's circumstantial evidence, I don't think that is the case based off of, like, the DNA that I've heard that they found. Um, you know, but if, you know, for some shot in the dark that he isn't, you know, that's just going to follow you, that a fucking serial killer was just like, oh, yeah, you're a clone of me. Like, ugh. Also, I see it, though. Like, as grossed out as I am, and as much as I hate this, I fucking see it. Like, I don't... I hate to say BTK. It probably isn't wrong about the killer of this case, whether it is Hewerman or an unidentified subject. You know, because obviously with this, we have to say allegedly, regardless of how strong the evidence is, because he has not been convicted. You know, rules are rules. I haven't seen anything as far as, like, a possible court date yet, but I will keep you guys posted. Um, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like he's been bailed out. So, hopefully, that alleged piece of shit is behind bars, you know, where he can't hurt anyone. So, that is all I have for you, my loves, as far as, like, what's in the news today. So, yeah, I'm hoping to kind of, like, keep this segment. Maybe do, like, one or two stories. Maybe not three. Um... I was thinking of having a fourth, but um, I want to save that for next week. So, yeah, we'll see how many true crime cases for this news segment we will have in the future. Um, hopefully we'll have it every episode, you know. But we will see, you know, as time goes on, <laughs> if it is relevant or not. But with the end of this news catch-up segment, let's get into our actual case for this week. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives. The list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So 
You don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code IvoryTower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Now, this case we are about to get into this week, back from the break, is one of a more... I feel like it's a more popular disappearance case. However, I don't see many podcasts covering it, but I also feel like many people in the true crime world know about the disappearance of Brandon Swanson. So for this week's episode, let's get into it. Brandon Victor Swanson was born on January 30th, 1989 in Marshall, Minnesota to Brian and Annette Swanson. He was one of at least two children, and it's known that he at least had a sister, and I think her name is Jamini. It's J-A-M-I-N-E. I I don't know if that was a typo. It was supposed to be Janine and not Jamine. I'm not sure, but either way, you know, he has a sister. After high school, Brandon attended Minnesota West Community and Technical College to study wind turbines and, I guess, reusable energy. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the social media post yet, Brandon Swanson was described as standing at 5.6, having long or longer brown curly-ish hair and blue eyes who wore glasses. Now, after finishing his first year on May 13th, 2008, which was two years before I graduated high school, just for reference, everyone, Brandon went out to a few parties with some friends to celebrate the end of the year, and the city was said to be Canberg, or Canby, C-A-N-B-Y. Y'all know I can't pronounce shit correctly. (laughs) I'm just going to start spelling it for (laughs) y'all so you can figure it out from there. So C-A-N-B-Y, can be, I'm guessing, was where was the city that he was at. Now, it was said that at least at two parties he was seen drinking, but to his friends that were there, they were like, he didn't drink a lot and he didn't appear to be very intoxicated. Brandon left before midnight and began his 30-mile journey back home in his Chevrolet Lumina. Shortly before 2 a.m., sadly, he lost control of his car and drove into a ditch. Now, according to authorities, he should have taken Highway 68 because that would have been a straight shot from where he was in Canby, like where the school was, to home. But instead, it seems like Brandon chose the back roads. Now, Brandon's parents have said that Brandon liked to drive, so this could have been one of his motivating factors for taking the back roads another possibility and maybe it's a more controversial thing but like having been a college student before like I feel like maybe he he, maybe he was just a little bit nervous because no matter how much he had to drink maybe he was a little bit on the reserve side and was kind of like maybe I had to maybe I might be over the limit Let me take these back roads because the speed limits are less, you know, despite maybe even, you know, the less police activity aspect of it. But, you know, there might be less traffic. You're not having to travel as high of a speed. So maybe that could have been a reason, you know, to be safe. That could have been a reason why, you know, he did it. Regardless of whether he was over the limit or not, you know, maybe he just felt nervous about it. You know, I don't know. I'm not trying to get too much into his brain, but I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, I'm putting, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, which I normally do with these victims. And I can see why he made the decision that he did to take the back roads. That's all I'm saying. Thankfully, Brandon driving into a ditch, like, did not cause any injuries to him and he was completely fine. So he was able to get out of the car. And from that point, he called his parents. He told them that he was in between Marshall, which was the town that where they lived, and a town called Lind. 
Now, according to authorities, given where he was driving from and where he was going to, it's almost kind of impossible for him to be near Lind because Lind is southwest of Marshall, whereas where Brandon was coming from was north of Marshall, can be. So, like I said, it wouldn't make sense for him to be so south when he was coming from so north. Instead, though, they would find that he was closer to a city called Porter, which is about 20 miles from Marshall. Now, Brian and Ned Swanson, Brandon's parents, got in their pickup truck once they got a call from their son saying that he needed help. You know, and they drove to where he was telling them where he was. And they stayed on the phone with him pretty much the entire time. Now, after about 43 to 47 minutes, because there are conflicting sources, hence the strange numbers of 43 and 47. At some point during this call, like I said, whether it's at point 43, point 47, Brandon says, oh, shit. And Annette states that it sounded like the phone fell after he said this. And she also insists that he was on Gravel Road based off of what she had told him and, you know, just the other all overall sounds that she was hearing in the background from when he was walking. Sadly, immediately after this, the line goes dead. Now, Brian and Annette tried furiously to get Brandon back on the line, calling him back constantly. But they were met with nothing. At around 6, 6.30 a.m., Brian and Annette called 911 and reported Brandon missing. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E made it. Or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that Key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. 
And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer, and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Brandon's mother, Annette, stated to reporters that when the line went dead that first time, she felt nauseous. And she knew immediately that something was wrong and that something horrible had happened to her son. The Swansons were told at first when they called 911 at 6 a.m. that it was hardly unusual for young men that age to stay out that night. Especially after the last day of classes. Like, how dare you be so concerned about your son? I mean, I don't know that that's, excuse me, necessarily what that dispatcher, dispatcher excuse me, had meant to say. Or was, you know, implying. But to me, it just seems that no one was listening to her. And Annette specifically recalled that one of the officers that she spoke to said that it was, quote, Brandon, or that it was Brandon's, quote, right to be missing, end quote. I mean... And again, this is why I feel like no one was fucking listening to her because had they had heard the part where she had been trying, her and her husband had been actively trying to find him like he had called and was hoping they would do. I mean, the fact that they just would, (sighs) the fact that they just brushed it off like that pisses me off to no end. Now, the police department of Lind did eventually do something. You know, this is the town that he thinks, Brandon thinks that he's in. So around 12.30 p.m., so again, like literally like six hours. Yeah, 6.30, Yeah, six hours from when she had called, finally decided to do a search. And, of course, they find no trace of him in the town or outside. Now, thankfully, they were somewhat smart, and they requested the help from the Loin County, or Lyon County Sheriff's Department to assist them. And, obviously, this is good because, you know, they're working together. They're trying to find this person. However, sadly, in this situation, it turns out to be a too-many-cooks-in-the-kitchen type of scenario. Now, throughout this case, it seems like investigators had a hard time figuring out which department was leading the investigation, which we all know causes a shitload of fucking problems. Now, Brandon's car was eventually found stuck in a dish off of Lyon Lincoln Road, which is a gravel road between Porter and Taunton. And I say gravel road because if you remember... That's where Annette pretty much thought he was based off the sounds in the background and things like that and what he told her. However, though, searching the car, officers found no sign of foul play. Or obviously him. Now, this does not mean that foul play did not occur. And I hope I'm not, like, indulging conspiracy theorists. I'm just trying to look at this case that doesn't have an answer. Spoilers. From all angles now just because and the only reason i'm saying this is because just because they didn't find foul play at the car doesn't mean that foul play didn't occur because we know he walked away from the car so just because there wasn't anything at the actual car doesn't mean that something happened something didn't happen while he was you know on his walk trying to find his parents and have his parents locate him 
The Lumina had gotten hung up on the top of an incline at the edge of the road. Now, it was not seriously damaged enough. But it, like, the car was up enough off the ground that, like, it could, like, the wheels would not touch the ground from the opposite side. Meaning, like, it would have literally been impossible for him to try and get his car out of this situation on his own, nonetheless. Now, again, there was nothing else found amiss with the car. And due to the grass and gravel surrounding it, there were no tracks and thus no way to tell which direction he was really walking in. But thanks to, you know, cell phone tower pings and things like that, they were able to find that. So his cell phone had been found rooted through a tower at the intersection of County Roads 3 and County Routes 10 in Minnesota. By May 15th, the call had been determined to come from within five miles of that specific tower. Now, searchers were concentrating their efforts there, since part of that circle included Yellow Medicine County to the north. Authorities from that jurisdiction also took part again, just adding another cook <laughs> to this kitchen, this unorganized kitchen, sadly. On the call with his parents, Brendan mentioned seeing a light. Now, investigators find that it is possible that the light that he saw was a red light atop of a Taunton, Minnesota grain elevator. Ground searches were being conducted along with a flyover by an aerial team, meaning they had helicopters deployed, as well as search dog and a team of bloodhounds nearby Coddington County, South Dakota, picked up a three-mile scent that followed the fields northwestern of an abandoned farm, then along the Yellow Medicine River to a point where it appeared to enter a stream. Now, obviously, these places are slightly far away from where he is, so... And I'm not, I never want to discredit dogs because I love them so fucking much. And again, we don't know what happened, so I'm not saying that they're wrong. But, I don't know, it just seems a little weird to me. Sorry, I hit my mic. It just seems a little weird to me. But I love those dogs. God bless them for doing everything that they do. Because they're just amazing creatures. Just being taught to do one thing and... You know, just like us, they're infallible. But also, I think they're perfect. But obviously, that doesn't matter in this case. Now, Brandon had mentioned hearing nearby water, according to his father, from their phone conversation. Now, this fuels the theory that Brandon might have drowned. Boats from the Minnesota State's Department of Natural Resources were deployed along the river and gates were installed, you know, to try to keep anything from getting out. In some areas of Lincoln County, the water had been at least 10 feet deep on the morning of his disappearance, but had gone down since then. Now, I don't know an exact time of all of this, and I'm sorry, but... You know, at some point, deputies walked into the riverbanks and horses and all-terrain vehicles were deployed in the surrounding areas. So, despite the lack of willingness on their part to be involved in this case and the slight delay in time, I mean, they really are trying to do everything they can. And again, this is multiple jurisdictions, which always causes problems, unfortunately. But yeah, you know... They're not not trying. They're just not trying hard enough, which is unfortunate. After the original search found no signs of Brandon, most efforts were discontinued. And this is one of like one of the most heartbreaking things. And I, <sighs> because the Swansons left their porch light on every night as their symbol of hope that Brandon would eventually return home or just be found. And they still do. And that, like I said, I mean, <sighs> it makes me want to cry. Because, <laughs> I mean, I know if I were in their position, I would do the exact same fucking thing. Like, I don't know how you 
in this type of situation where there is no body found and spoilers, there is no body found. He is still considered a missing person until this day. I don't know how you, again, I'm sorry, I hit my microphone, as a parent, Jesus, I did it again, how you reconcile with that. And if your thing is leaving the light on at night, I mean, then if that's all that you have to do, more power to you. And again, I'm not saying it's because, like, you're more over. It's just because you're just a stronger breed of fucking human who can... <sighs> we'll even get into more how much of amazing human beings they are in just a second. Now, searches resumed later that fall after fields planted shortly because, like, there was a whole, you know, because of the harvest and plantation time during that time, that's why they wanted to look at these fields. Now, the dogs on those searches continued to follow the scent of human remains into another northwest area of Porter that had not been previously blah, 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 that had not been previously searched, but efforts also then picked up back up or picked back up in the spring after the snow melted because obviously it's a lot harder to search for a body in the snow. They decided to do it that before the planting, and basically to simplify it, this is all about Earth being disturbed. So this is something they continued into 2011. By that time, though, 122 square miles had been searched. In 2010, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension took over as the lead agency for the case. And just for clarification, that is the year that I graduated. So I was 18 at the time. I'm 31 now. I was 18 at the time. I'm sure a lot of you are a lot younger than that. But for me, that just, I don't know. It's a very personal thing. I know I would have been more aware of it at the time. That's all. It set up, basically, the Bureau set up a tip line. And by 2015, 90 leads had been reported. By that point, the area of interest had moved towards Mud Creek, a basically an area near... Yellow Medicine, and northwest of Porter. Tens of thousands of hours were spent looking for Brandon, but none of them were successful. Despite efforts from, I think it was a total of 45 canines from nine different states. Many theories range from foul play to accidental drowning to freezing to death. Sadly, like I said earlier, because there is no body, there is really no way to know what happened. And to this day, Brandon Swanson is still missing. His parents, disturbed by police's lack of initial response and the procedures in place for missing persons, which, you know, most people are pissed off about, Annette knew she needed to do something. She met with Marty Searfurt, which I think is how you pronounce his last name. He was a majority leader of the Senate House of Representatives at the time. The two talked about the problems that she had experienced with the police when she reported Brandon missing. He said, quote, She knew it wouldn't help in her son's case, but that it could help in the future of others. End quote. It's also important to remember that our sweet angel goddess, Sam, from Creme de la Crime podcast, told us about the misconceptions of the 48-hour rule. Because that whole, you need to wait 48 hours to report a person missing, is absolute bullshit. It literally does not exist. You can report like these parents did, like, pretty much immediately. And if you get any issues, not only are you in your own right to tell that person to fuck off, you can actually report a missing person. You should also ask for their manager just to, you know, hit it a little bit hard. Because I can't, I mean... 
if they were in that fucking situation, they would want every single fucking resource at their disposal to be deployed to find their missing loved one, wouldn't they? But instead, here they are making up fuck. And I'm not, oh, I shouldn't even say that they're making up excuses because some of them just, you know, make up those excuses. Oh, well, you know, they, you gotta wait 48 hours. Blah, 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 blah. They're fine. They're an adult. They can do whatever they want. Well, like, sometimes people just try to. F- I'm sorry. I <laughs> hit my microphone. I'm getting so angry over here. You know, sometimes just people try to find every excuse to not do their job and it's really infuriating in these types of situations because these are literally situations where anyone who is intaking should not be fallible and I know that's extremely unfair to say but I mean they should at least fucking try I mean because (laughs) what the what the fuck Your son has a right to be... I mean, get the fuck out of here. If anyone told me my son had a right to be missing when I knew for a fucking fact, like this woman is trying to... Annette is trying to tell them, you know, that he is definitely missing. Like, get the fuck out of here with that. (sighs) I'm sorry. It pisses me off. Now... The representative Seifert introduced a new bill called Brandon's Law, and that would make the required change by amending the law governing that the state's existing missing child's program change the word from child to person. So essentially they're saying, like, it shouldn't matter if it's child or another human being, like, you know, an older human being. Like, it should just be missing persons. We should care about it all the same. Da-da-da-da. Call it at the end of the day. A lot of law enforcement people in the area were not okay with it because, quote, part of it had to do with privacy, especially regarding cell phones. Technology was emerging then, so there were discussions about privacy and when they could ping you and when they can't. So, I mean, because essentially what this bill is trying to say that you should be able to be able to find someone based off of this. Now, the bill passed in both houses unanimously. And in May 2009, Governor Tim Pontley, sorry, I, <laughs> my ability to pronounce people's last names has not improved, y'all. But anyway, he signed it into law. And the Swansons and their daughter, they were all in attendance at the ceremony. The effect of this change also required that police, in addition to determining in their preliminary investigation that the reported person is indeed missing, determine whether that person is potentially in dangerous circumstances. They must also notify nearby law enforcement agencies promptly. This is what they're saying, you know, from Brandon's Law. Brandon's Law also clarifies that the agency taking report is the lead agency investigating the case. The absence of that distinction obviously had created problems in the later phases and initial searches when he went missing. Under this law, police are also no longer allowed to refuse a report based on initial belief that no criminal activity is involved. The brevity of interval since the person was last seen, the possibility that the person may have intentionally disappeared, Or the lack of relationship between the missing person and the reporter. Which, again, I mean, I understand shit is expensive. But I would rather resources be spent finding someone who doesn't want to be found than to completely ignore a legitimate missing dangerous, not dangerous, that the person who's missing is dangerous, but that they're in a dangerous situation You know, rather than ignore that, you know, I'd rather spend money on, you know, time of finding people who don't want to be found than to not spend money on people who could potentially be saved. Point blank. Honestly, I really cannot fathom how these parents 
who have suffered such tremendous loss go on to do something so positive. Like, I, I, I truly feel like this is, like, one of the truest examples of the human spirit because I do think inherently we are all born good-natured, that we all generally want to help others that we're not inherently so super selfish and just wanting to be about ourselves. You know, I think that it's life that alters and shapes us and how we see the world and choose to go forward. But again, what they have done is just so inspiring. Thank you all my loves for listening in to this episode of True Crime and Academia. Don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia. Also, don't forget to follow my parent podcast, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, at Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter and at Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok or, yeah, and TikTok. Instagram, and Facebook. And until next week, my loves, I will see you later.